Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. It's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and why many young Canadian men are struggling to leave their mother's basements. We live in terrible conditions. I think we need to stop financialized landlords. We need to stop that economic engine that they have. And you're not going to solve the housing crisis without supply. It has to be affordable supply, and you're not going to solve it without full rent control across all provinces and territories. This is Tanya Burkhardt, a tenant leader with ACORN, which is a local and national community organization primarily focusing on tenant rights. Tanya has really been through the ringer as a tenant. She had to leave Toronto in order to be able to afford to rent a home for her family. Her corporate landlord in her new place has not been addressing some serious issues with her unit. Leaking windows, leaking bathtubs, lots of things that leak. That results in mold. Insufficient air quality. The building's very old and there's a lot of humidity and air quality issues. Appliances are very old and they're definitely not uh, family sized. Flooding issues like water as we have storms and snow and ice. Unlit pathways. We still don't have accessibility. We didn't have access to basics like smoke and CO alarms. And she's also faced above the guideline increases in rent despite all these maintenance problems. There isn't really any place for me to move to. Three-bedroom units are like a unicorn. They're very difficult to find. I'm stuck because I can't move. There isn't a unit, and what units are available are simply not affordable. I think there's this disconnect between affordable and supply. We don't have the supply, but what we do have is simply unaffordable. And Tanya's housing conditions and concerns are unfortunately not at all unique. Far too many Canadians are struggling in the current housing crisis. So let me regale you with some more details about all of our housing woes, mine and yours. 
So I'm in a pretty unique situation in that my financial situation is basically a matter of public record, which is what happens when your main source of income for the past two years has been game show which millions of people watch. And even though I'm one of those rare young people who's become financially solvent without having to rely on the bank of mom and dad, I still find myself existentially terrified at the prospect of having to leave my apartment, whether it's due to my landlord deciding to renovate or if I need to move for work or really any of these things. And this is really not just a me problem. It's in fact far less of a problem for me than it is for most people. So many people that I know are hanging onto their current apartments, just digging their claws in for dear life in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Halifax, Montreal, because they know that any move is going to come with a precipitous rent increase. And as for owning a home, basically people are feeling like they can completely forget about it. For many younger people, a starter home, if they can afford one at all, is basically like a box in the sky with barely enough room to stretch your legs, cabinet doors that are probably going to fall off in five years because none of these new condos seem to be built well. You know, older people say that the problem is that, oh, young people, by which they mean anybody under like 40, need to save better. Oh, you buy too many fancy coffees. Cut your Disney Plus subscription. That's going to solve it. It's only $13.99 a month that we're saving, but every little bit helps. And I think I wonder how this is going for the people who did cut their subscriptions. Did that buy you a house? I don't think so. I'm not a Disney Plus girly myself, but I will happily continue paying for Criterion Channel and living in my same apartment. According to the conservative leader Pierre Poilievre, the housing crisis is an issue that we can blame squarely on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government. If the government stands in the way of you getting a home, it stands in the way of your entire life going forward. The good news is, housing costs were not like this before Justin Trudeau, and they won't be like this after he's gone. We can borrow less and build more. But that's not entirely true. Look, I will be the first to say that the current Liberal government has not been spectacular, and in fact has been, like, actively unspectacular, really quite bad on this particular issue. But this crisis is indicative of a years-long trend that's resulted from conscious policy decisions that date back decades. Somewhat refreshingly, Housing Minister Sean Fraser is actually admitting this. For 30 years, the federal government, under both liberal and conservative leadership, failed to make the necessary investments to build out enough affordable housing stock in this country to make sure that everybody had a place to live. This has created a series of very serious but utterly avoidable consequences that we are living with today. As Fraser is alluding to, there has been a huge drop in investment into affordable housing. Between 1973 and 1994, Canada built or acquired around 16,000 nonprofit or co-op homes every year, a total of about 336,000 homes over 21 years. If we compare that to the period between 1994 and 2016, so a period of around the same length, the number dropped to 1,500 homes per year. That's like a tenth of what we were doing before. That's huge. And this happened not just under the Liberals, also under the Conservatives, under Chrétien, under Martin, under Harper, under Trudeau, which ended federal housing programs or failed to reinstate them that had previously built thousands of units of affordable housing. The result is that responsibility for social housing has been handed down to the provinces. In 2015, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals were elected and announced the creation of the National Housing Strategy. But, like, being real, the situation is not good. The National Housing Strategy has not done enough. We could take the classic liberal line and blame provinces and their mismanagement of this issue for the housing crisis, but we want to get to the root. The policy decision in the 1990s of opting out of funding affordable homes and the continued pursuit of that policy. So yeah, Trudeau failed, but this country's been failing on the housing front for years. Jen Saint-Denis is a reporter with the TIE. She covers housing with a particular focus on Vancouver's downtown east side neighborhood. 
She's tracked the rise in housing prices in British Columbia and the subsequent fallout on renters and people experiencing homelessness. This episode, we want to chat with her to set the record straight. Why was a policy decision that fundamentally uprooted the Canadian housing market ever made in the first place? Is there more to our housing crisis than a single policy decision? And most importantly, how do we fix this so that we can continue drinking our little $5 coffees, pay rent, and maybe some people can even own homes? This is asking for a lot, except for is it really? Like, this seems like something we should all be able to do. How about a world where we can at least do two of these things? Like coffee and rent? Is that too much to ask? Let's get into it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So hi, Jen. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So to kick things off, I think when people talk about the housing crisis now, we talk about it as a product of the Trudeau government. You know, basically, this is something that's happened since 2015. I think that's somewhat reductive, but it does make sense to start off with what Justin Trudeau and the liberals have done on housing since they were first elected. So what are the main policies that they've put in place to try and address the housing crisis? So when the Trudeau liberals got elected, they kind of did really revamp the federal involvement on the housing file. So Back in the early 1990s, a previous liberal government, uh, Jean Chrétien's liberal government, really got, got the federal government to exit out of the housing file and left it all to the provinces. And the provinces in return kind of downloaded a bunch of stuff to the municipalities. And that obviously didn't turn out so great because the federal government used to fund, you know, tens of thousands of units of below market housing, co-ops, that kind of thing. So there was a big gap left. And what happened was that it turned to really focusing on homeowners rather than low income housing. So then that brought us to this like really overheated investment heavy kind of like the idea of housing as an investment, not just a home. And so by 2015, when the liberals were elected after that long period of conservative government, they were like, we're going to do things differently. And they they started a thing called the National Housing Strategy. And that was a real signal that the Fed's were back, baby. They were back in the housing game. Yeah. So the departure, I guess, from housing in the 90s, that was like to do with the, it was the CMHC, right? The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Mm -hmm. Corporation, which used to bankroll a lot of these like below market housing projects or co-ops and things like that. Yeah, that's right. And my understanding is that now it's basically just sort of the company that backs up mortgages in Canada and kind of like doesn't do anything for renters. Well, that's actually changed recently, but like, yeah, that's totally correct. They basically, in the 90s, they kind of switched. This whole idea was like, we are going to like boost the working class into the middle class. And I think we all remember this from like our parents' generation, that they were all buying and selling houses a lot. And it was partly because of this big shift in like, hey, working and middle class people, you can use your housing as an investment. And they really switched CMHC from this, you know, housing agency to, yeah, backing mortgages, really a lot of focus on home ownership, 
a lot of the federal housing policy was all about like giving tax breaks to first time homeowners. And there was always some little goodies in every single you know new budget. But the liberals did when they introduced the national housing strategy is they actually revamped CMHC and they turned it back into the organization that is actually looking, you know, focused on housing, not just homeowners. CMHC now has a huge focus on renters, which it didn't have before. Yeah, I think that the sort of focus on homeownership and this notion that, like, everyone should always be wanting to buy a home, specifically as an investment, not just for the benefit of having more stability in terms of your situation, not being subject to the whims of a landlord, like, it really seems more about, like, this is how you save for retirement. Like, this is how you have something to give to your kids. Exactly. And that's why it's so hard to turn it around. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, a lot of like older people now have that they say, my house is my retirement. Yeah. And then you have these programs like one of the big marquee things from this government was this like new first home savings account that they announced. And it was like huge during the 2021 election campaign that they were talking about it. And it's one of those things where I was kind of like, okay, this is good for me, I guess, in the sense that I'm somebody who has money that I can put into it. But if you're somebody who's like barely making rent month on month, like that sort of a program really does not do anything for you. So I guess what I'm curious about then is like, what has this sort of revamped CMHC been doing for renters? And how effective has this national housing strategy been overall, whether it's for making things more affordable for renters or actually propelling people up into the homeowning class? So I think what most housing experts say is it is actually very positive that the federal government got back into housing. That's seen as a positive. But the national housing strategy is just not big enough. There's not enough money being devoted to it. You know, it sounds like a lot of money. I think it's $44 billion over 10 years or something. But what experts say is that's not nearly enough compared to what we used to do. So the government used to build like 16,000 housing units a year uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And that really slowed to like nothing. It sort of dove off a cliff in the 90s. And so we have this huge gap in apartment construction for rentals, for instance. And so we're now paying the price of that. And so that's why we kind of haven't seen that real transformational change is that the national housing strategy looks good on paper. And don't get me wrong, it's great. The CMHC does give money for rental projects and all sorts of things, but it's just not a bold enough program is what most most housing experts say about that. And governments just really can't resist giving those little goodies to always, it's always couched as like first time homeowners. You know, here in BC, we have like all this property, like if you're an older person, like maybe in your 60s or 70s, and you've owned and paid off your house, you know, it may be worth like two or $3 million. And the government every year just keeps on bumping up this homeowner grant that kind of gives like a little bit of money back to homeowners, just always wanting to kind of like, sort of soften the blow for homeowners. And, you know, for years, our provincial government promised like, oh, we're going to, we're actually going to do a similar benefit for renters. And it was delayed and delayed and delayed. So there's always this real like fear, I think, on the, on the part of governments to stop propping up homeownership. It's interesting, I guess, that you mentioned, you know, the national housing strategy has been good, but kind of like isn't really sufficient to meet the moment and to meet the crisis that we're in. And one thing that the Conservative Party and Pierre Poilievre have been, I think, like super effective in doing in terms of this like long campaign that seems to have been being waged like basically ever since he won the leadership election leading up to whenever the next election is, is they've been really hammering the liberals on housing. And before the holidays, they released this 15 minute what they're calling a documentary housing hell that really seems to have resonated with people, like just did crazy numbers of people who watched Mm it. So, you know, obviously it struck a chord with people, but in terms of like other solutions that are being offered by the conservatives to either supplement or replace what the liberal government has been doing, like what else is on offer here? 
that video is really interesting. I wrote a whole fact check article on it. So if people want to get like, if they've seen the video and they want to fact check, they can search on the Thai for that. Basically, Pierre Polyev and his team did this amazing job of kind of capturing like the grief and anger of younger Canadians who are like, why can I not buy a, a home like my parents did? Like, what is wrong? Like, there's a huge disconnect between our incomes and the price of housing. And so he does a really good job of capturing that and saying that he says he used words like this is a nightmare. And that's kind of unusual for governments. They don't usually want to say that that's really, really wrong because, of course, the people who are benefiting are some of their voters. Now, where he comes a little flat, in my opinion, is the solution. So he basically has two things that he's offering. He's saying Trudeau liberals have been spending too much money. He never mentions the COVID-19 pandemic in the video, which is why a lot of this like increased government spending happened for things like CERB and other benefits during COVID. So he's like, look, uh, the Trudeau liberals spent so much money, so much taxpayer money, that made inflation go up. Well, actually, most experts say that inflation went up because of supply chain issues after the pandemic. And then, you know, mortgage rates, like interest rates went up because to counter inflation, and then mortgages went up, and now Canadians are having a hard time. And so his solution to all of that whole little economic story is to cut government spending. So that's kind of that. And he's like, I'm going to cut government spending, and that's going to make uh, your mortgage costs go down. I don't know. I if I was, I'd be skeptical about that. It seems a little <laughs> simplistic to me, given the complexity of the economy. But that's what he says. Well, because I'm like, okay, so your mortgage cost goes down if interest rates go down, but that still only helps you if you already own a house. Like, I guess is kind of my thought about it. So again, it's like I'm unclear. Like in theory, I think when people say these sorts of things, there's supposed to be some sort of like trickle down benefit of well, if mortgage rates go down, maybe it's easier to get approved for one. And so mm -hmm. you can access home ownership more easily that way. You know, in theory, then like renters, I suppose, are supposed to also benefit because people are not having to raise rents to compensate for the fact that mortgage costs are going up. That only really makes sense if you assume that most people are renting from like individual landlords as opposed to from mm -hmm. like corporations, which is obviously yeah. not necessarily true. Yeah, I mean, we can spend a lot of time like parsing it and figuring out, is it true? Or we can kind of take another look and be like, well, this is very typical conservative messaging. We mm -hmm. need to cut government spending. Governments are like out of control. We need to manage our budgets like a family does and <laughs> cut costs. And that's just very, very typical yeah. conservative messaging. It's like always the turn back to the austerity politics, kind yeah. of like no matter yeah. what the actual crisis is that you're confronting. Yeah. And then the second thing he's he's promising, he's really pushing for cities to kind of loosen up their zoning rules and to allow more housing. And he's doing a really clever thing here. He's really like aping the, the kind of like rhetoric that we see from the YIMBY movement, the Yes in My Backyard movement, which is mostly younger people who are kind of like going against, you know, the older homeowners in cities who tend to come out to public hearings and say, this rental building isn't a good fit for my neighborhood or whatever. It's going to cast a shadow on the street. The shadow. <laughs> yeah, I can't garden or whatever. He's taking that, some of that language and he's talking about things like, hey, we shouldn't have this requirement that you have to have so much parking for a new development, which was pure YIMBY rhetoric. And what he's saying is he's also threatening to not allow cities to have like infrastructure funding unless they agree to a certain supply. He wants to really have high density near transit. By the way, this is very, very similar to what Aaron O'Toole promised back you know, in the previous election. So it's actually not really a new policy. A lot of housing experts actually say that this is positive that the conservative government like using carrot to like 
push for more supply, more, more housing supply, like more dense housing near transit is good. But what Pierre Polyev is doing is this, he's promising this really punitive approach. He's saying like, I'm going to withhold infrastructure spending. And of course, cities do need infrastructure money to build housing. So mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe he's putting the cart before the horse there. But it, again, it's it's very conservative messaging where it's like, I'm going to have government get out of the way of the private market and we're going to just going to let them build, baby, build. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's like so much interesting about what you just said. A couple things that this all makes me think of. One is that the federal government actually, like the liberals, I think, have really seen how effective some of this rhetoric has been from the conservatives and are actually now, you know, especially since Sean Fraser moved into the housing portfolio, have been like starting to announce that they are going to tie infrastructure funding in some ways to basically city governments being willing to allow more density. I know in Halifax, there was some sort of like big fracas over it. I think in Mississauga as well, there was like recently some sort of change in zoning laws um, to allow for greater density. The other thing I guess that this calls to mind for me is just like this interplay between the different levels of government and like these fights that we continuously see over like who's really in charge of housing policy in this country. Because as you mentioned, since the 90s, there's been this like downloading of responsibility first to the provinces and then to the municipalities, which is like the order of government that has the least ability to raise money for large infrastructure projects by far. And what we're seeing right now in Toronto, not to be like, it's the biggest city in the country. Like sometimes we have to talk about it. (laughs) I'll permit it. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, I at least sometimes get it. I said Halifax too. I'm not from this city originally. (laughs) Come on. But, you know, we're having this like huge now public discussion about like Olivia Chow's announced, oh, the property taxes in Toronto are going to go up not even to like match what they are anywhere else in the city. And she's trying to essentially use leverage against the federal government saying like, and we'll jack them up even higher unless the feds chip in to like pay to house basically like currently unhoused migrants. So, you know, I guess like, what is the origin of these sorts of tensions? And it, it seems like this is a problem across the country that like the different orders of government, like just nobody wants to pay for housing. Yeah, I hate to be a broken record, but I would say that that kind of does go back to that 90s era exit of the federal government from this file. The downloading that happened, you know, created this kind of situation where the provinces and in BC, we actually had a pretty okay transition. We had we have a housing agency here called BC Housing, and we actually fared a lot better than other provinces. But it creates this dynamic where everybody's sort of just trying to leverage that funding and municipalities are in this tough spot because they, you know, you say that they don't have a lot of funding powers or like power to raise money. And that's true, but they have a lot of control over where housing gets built and like the planning. And so I think that's where you're seeing the tension right now between federal governments and provincial governments and municipalities over this whole, like pushing for more housing supply issue. And it's not just Pierre Polyev that's talking about it. You know, here in BC, we have a BC NDP government. And initially, when they got into power in 2017, they were really all about like demand side measures, like more taxes on foreign buyers, taxes on really high properties. And they're still kind of squeezing on those demand side measures. There was a bunch of new Airbnb rules that they just announced. But we're really seeing them focus now on supply, on pushing cities to allow more density. And of course, cities are coming right back and saying like, well, we need like, we need money. We need money for planning. We need money for infrastructure. So if you want us to build more housing. So it's just, yeah, this continual like pushing on each other for either decisions or money. And we're probably going to continue to see that. (laughs) Just this, this is the constant struggle in Canada of like, it really does feel like so many of our problems are just like tossing around the football of like, I do not want to pay for this like very big, urgent thing that everyone needs. Yeah. What if you paid for it instead? 
Well, we have a subway that that we built right now in Vancouver that doesn't go all the way to UBC, the university. It just goes halfway because the federal government needs to step up and fund the rest of it. So. Oh, a, a subway that doesn't go where it's supposed to go? <laughs> Toronto would never have heard of such a thing. Eglinton Line 5. I'm but... sure you're shocked. <laughs> no, it, literally, I was talking to a friend the other day. I was like, do you think Eglinton Line 5, which was supposed to open in like 2018, do we think it's going to open this year? Genuine uncertainty on that question. <laughs> so I want to circle back like earlier, you know, one thing I kind of mentioned is there. there's this notion inherent in the idea, I think, of well, if we make it cheaper to pay for your mortgage, that is going to have this like trickle down economic style effect on yeah. rental. Yeah. Right. And well, if it's cheaper for your landlord to pay their mortgage, they're not going to have to jack up your rent as much. So my problem with this sort of line That's not of the way it is, works. <laughs> no, exa- exactly. That's the way governments want it to work. But if you talk to anyone who studies housing from economists to policy people, they're all like, well, the more you goose home ownership, the more prices are going to rise, especially in this environment we've created where now we just the investment drive is so strong in housing. Like it's just like this continual bubble. It's like the runaway train that just kind of keeps going, right? And I think the other thing, too, is it's like there's this inherent assumption in that framework that everyone who rents is renting from somebody who owns a house as an investment property, like as an individual investor, right? Now, I've always lived in properties like that. And I have to say, like, comparing my experience as a renter to the experiences, uh, what I've read and of people that I know who've rented from, like, property management companies or trusts, I definitely prefer, I think, the experience that I have. But like tons and tons of people are living in these buildings that are managed by real estate investment trusts, managed by these property management conglomerates. And the incentive structure there in terms of like what affects rent prices is totally different than if you're like an individual landlord who maybe like, I think in my landlord's case, she like inherited the building that I live in from her dad or something like that, right? So that, you know, it's a completely different situation than a company that's just trying to goose for as much money as possible. I think real estate investment trusts are something that are, it's really like under-discussed the role that they play mm-hmm. in jacking up rents in major cities. A lot of people, when they're starting to invest money, are encouraged to buy stock in these sorts of companies because they are very mm-hmm. lucrative. I try to avoid it because I think maybe it's like an evil way to invest money. (laughs) I guess, like, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that REITs, REITs, have been like a really big topic in Ontario. They haven't been as much of a big topic here in Vancouver, but certainly the discussion about investment is investment holdings, holding apartment buildings as an investment, is that good or bad? And so just to break this down, an REIT is like a company that owns like income generating real estate. It's kind of modeled on a mutual fund. The idea is that it's supposed to provide dividends to the investors. They also don't pay corporate income tax, which the federal liberals promised to look into. And I I can't see like a resolution to that. I don't think they ever came back with an answer. Here in Vancouver, I think there's maybe more focus on, you know, like these really big real estate development companies that might have a rental owning wing. They might own a whole bunch of buildings or these really big property management companies that own tons and tons of buildings. And I kind of have a different point of view on like whether or not they're kind of good or bad, because I think I think it kind of depends on like. I think they have different strategies sometimes. Certainly, I think there is a whole disconnect right now between market rent, because market rents have like rose and rose and rose. And then if you have somebody who's lived in a building for even like five years, but some people have lived for 10 or 20 years in the same apartment building, they're paying much, much lower rent. And there's a huge incentive to evict those people. And so here in BC, we've seen a ton of like different little 
landlords trying to use every loophole they can, including people who just own houses and are renting out a suite. They're, it's actually easier for them to evict tenants and they do. So we've, we've seen just a, a general like kind of using like any kind of excuse like, oh, I need to renovate. And it's just like a, a coat of paint or my my like mother is coming and she needs that unit. Uh, but actually that the mother doesn't come. They just rent it to somebody else. So we've seen landlords like continually just using kind of every little loophole they can to evict tenants. And it's causing chaos like in our cities in, in BC where rents are just so high. Um, this is really leading to like homelessness, frankly. No, I actually have a friend who recently was evicted from their apartment in Vancouver, like specifically through a process like what you're mentioning of there was this kind of false claim of like some family member of the landlord needed to move in. And then my, there's now my friend is like doing a court proceeding. Yeah. <laughs> like, and actually, like recently, the government changed the law so that tenants can dispute this and they can get a lot more compensation. They can get a year's worth of rent. But it's up to the tenant to prove it. Like the tenant has to go and get all the documentation. Yeah. The onus. Yeah. So in the, in this case, shout out my friend who does listen to this podcast. So sorry if I'm putting you on blast, but like she's a lawyer and like all her friends are lawyers. So like they know what they need to do. They can mm -hmm. go fight it. They're going to get their money. The average tenant really, like the, the level of knowledge and engagement that you need to have to be able to do any of that is just so high. Yeah. I, oh, it's yeah. crazy. I've actually written stories just telling tenants like, this is, this is how you find out who owns your building. Because mm -hmm. often that's not clear. It'll be owned by some, you know, like a they numbered don't even know corporation or something. Yeah. 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 I want to kind of talk about there was something you mentioned about just like market rent not being truly affordable, like market rent continually skyrocketing. The fact that like a lot of these evictions happen because in places where there is some sort of rent control. So I know in Ontario, for instance, there's like a cap on how much a landlord can increase rent year on year when the same tenants are remaining in a unit. Nova Scotia for a while didn't have this and then like introduced it again during COVID. Like that seems to be kind of the, the law of the land in most places. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you see landlords or property management companies doing these rent evictions or saying like, oh, I have this family member that needs to move in to like jack up the rent. In the conversation about affordable housing, like one thing that I've noticed is often you'll hear these notions of affordability that are like tied to what market rents are, right? It's like, instead of having like rent geared to income units yeah. uh, or units that are like set at, you know, a really low percentage of market rent, you'll see these like in Toronto constantly, you'll see these buildings that are being advertised of like, oh, new development and 20% of the units are going to be affordable. But then the definition of affordable is like 80% of market rent or something that for somebody who's actually like a member of the working poor is like, it's like laughable to say that it's affordable. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, like, I guess my question then is like, what does affordable housing look like to you? And like, why has the definition of affordable housing become so like divorced from any mm -hmm. real meaning of the word affordable? It's partly just simple economics, like land prices have risen so much that if you're actually going to build a new apartment building and everybody agrees we need to build more rental apartment buildings, it doesn't pencil out until you can get high rents. And so you find cities just, you know, city governments or city planners are kind of like putting these proposals together and they're like, we support this because it's going to be affordable. And they're kind of like, it feels like they're always kind of like juking the numbers a little bit to be like, look, it's 80% of market and it's still really high because market's really high. But I think what we're seeing there and what we really have to think about is that, and this can really play into like political processes too, where neighbors of the building might say, well, we would support this if it was affordable. <laughs> and it's kind of a reason to, another reason to say no to like a rental apartment building in your single yeah. family home neighborhood. Oh. 
So I think what we really need to emphasize is that we've kind of come to the end of new apartment buildings, the expectation that they'll be like super affordable to relatively low income people. It's still not, it's not a reason to say no to them. I guess that's what I would say to the critics is that we still need these buildings. We still need to create the stock, but we need to also be creating like actual nonprofit and below market buildings because we're at the point where we have just a huge swath of people who cannot afford market and they basically need what we used to call like social housing, right? They need like below market housing that is a rent geared to income model. And there's so many, you know, co-op housing. We could build more co-op housing. I live in a co-op. It's great. We could have lots of models, but we need we need much more of that supply. And that's the really hard supply to, to get because you can't rely on the private market to really fund mm-hmm. all of it. It has to be government, level of government helping. Yeah, because I, I think that this notion of like, we'll just build, baby, build, and we're going to, you know, we need to make it easier for private development to happen. Well, it's definitely better than nothing in the sense of like just more supply is going to somewhat serve to drive prices down or at least like make sure that vacancy rates are not like, you know, below 1% as they sometimes have been in major Canadian cities. But the thing of it is, is I feel like right now what I see is I see people that are kind of in my position, like young professionals who like single or double income, no kids, young professionals, few expenses, white collar jobs, competing for apartments with the working poor. Like, we are fighting over the same apartments because people that are in my position are no longer able to access either the nicer apartments that, in theory, like 20, 30 years ago, we could have gotten no longer able to get on the property ladder as homeowners because, essentially, like, there's just all of this housing stock that's, like, held in the hands of aging people who can't sell it, either because it's, like, their only investment or... One thing that's odd is, like, there's certain markets in Canada, like in the prairies, where it's, like, there's actually like incredibly cold housing markets and you keep hearing that things are like affordable, but no one wants to move there because like, there's no jobs. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Or it's really cold in the winter or whatever. You know, there's always yeah. been those like, I guess it's sort of like similar to like the Midwest in the States where it's like, oh, the coast is where people want to be. And the interior is kind of like, oh, do I want to live with mom and dad like on the farm or whatever? Sorry, that's not anything to do with prairie cities. They're great. I mean, it's always been historically been like that, right? Like you can get relatively more affordable housing like in, in cities like Saskatoon or Winnipeg. You know, Edmonton and Calgary always like susceptible to like the price of oil. So that kind of goes up and down. But I think what we saw in the pandemic though was that kind of got turned on its head because suddenly home prices went up everywhere across Canada, including in small towns. So I don't think we can discount, like we have to think about the carnage has really extended to small towns and it's been really alarming in BC. Mm -hmm. You know, homelessness has grown in small towns too, and that's, they're really not equipped to handle it. And so it's, the housing system has really, I think we used to think that, but I think that all all housing markets are relatively hot right now since yeah. being goosed by the pandemic. And like, you know, people being able to work from home. Remotely. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. been this like, well, one thing that happened is because there was a period of time where rents decreased during the pandemic in a lot of major cities as people kind of like f- who had the option to leave and go somewhere more rural. Very, very briefly, a very brief decrease. And then it just went crazy. And then yeah. it went way, w- yeah. way worse than it was before. I'm so lucky. Like I locked in my rent during that time. And so I'm like, I am n- not leaving my apartment. I have prayed yeah. about my landlord does yeah. not listen to this podcast. <laughs> but like, in cities out east, like, it's terrible. Like, Charlottetown, yeah. which is not a major city at all, the cost of housing has skyrocketed. Wages, salaries. That really squeezes out locals, right? The people who depend on the local economy. In Vancouver, we always had this angst in the 2015 and 2016 period. We had this huge angst about 
the role that foreign buyers are playing mostly. And that was mostly focused on, you know, like people from mainland China. We have to turn that around and think like, okay, if you are moving from Vancouver to like the Kootenays and you're going to like sit on your property and work remotely for a tech company, are you a foreign buyer? Kind of. Yeah. So yeah, that's really brought that home for me. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about solutions. I do want to try and inject a glimmer of hope into what can kind of be a grim discussion of like, oh my God, everything costs so much money and no one no one wants to build anything that anyone can afford. We've talked about, you know, the price of land has just gone up so much. Also, the price of like literal building materials still due to supply chain issues is like crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. Even if you have like an empty plot of land that you were able to get on the cheap somewhere rural, the cost of building anything there for yourself is just ridiculous. So, you know, big picture, getting the federal government somehow back invested in social housing co-ops, these sorts of things is a possible solution. Are there any like smaller scale solutions, I suppose, that you've seen that have been effective? Or I know there's also been some instances of tenant organizing against rent hikes. There was a very brief moment at the start of the pandemic where people got really excited about the idea of rent strikes, which obviously are not a long-term solution for anything. I've heard people talking about community land trusts. I keep joking with my friends that we should buy land up in Timmins and just live off it. Like, how do we get out of this? I think there's a few things, and these are all from BC. So if you know any from other places, let me know. I just, I focus really quite narrowly on BC. So there's this thing that the government introduced um, about a, a year or two ago. It's called the Rental Acquisition Fund. And so the idea, these nonprofit housing advocates had been lobbying the government for a long time. They were like, listen, there's all these older apartment buildings. They get bought and sold as investment properties. And then all the tenants get evicted or pressured to move out. And what if we did something different? What if we made it easier for nonprofit housing providers or, hey, even the residents of the apartment building themselves to buy these buildings and run them as nonprofit housing or in the sort of like theory that I talked about, the residents could theoretically buy it and make it into a co-op, which I thought was pretty exciting. The BC government did that. Um, they set up this $500 million program. And apparently there's been a lot of take up. I don't know of any actual deals yet, but there's been apparently 80 applications for these grants so far. So I think that is quite interesting. Yeah, the community land trust model. The problem with that is that back in the 70s, when everybody was excited about community land trust, land prices were much lower and now they're much higher. That is happening in Vancouver. There were seven sites, city owned sites that were identified like many years ago in 2017 that are now being built out as a community land trust model. And they're they're different models. Some of them are co-ops. Some of them are just nonprofit housing, but they're all kind of being built out. So those are a couple that I know of that are kind of like positive things. And I feel like, yeah, people always get excited about co-op housing. And I do feel like there's always a lot of appetite for that, like more and more co-ops. I just feel like the feds just need to like just do a big funding push and identify some empty land because people seem to just across the board, you know, here in Vancouver, we have a relatively right wing city government. They they love co-ops. So that seems to be relatively non-controversial, something we could do. So those are a few like bright spots. <laughs> yeah. It kind of seems like the only way that we get out of this is just like massive, massive amounts of investment because all of these things of like, oh, letting tenants maybe buy out a property together, you know, people going in on community land trusts together. I know there's also been some instances, I think, out in Nova Scotia of people doing that all like rely on, first of all, like significant coordination efforts on the part of like people who 
for a variety of reasons, like just the fact that like capitalism, the pandemic like has atomized us so much and like we're mm. living in such, I could talk like all day about how we're living in a society of like distrust and there's all these yeah. problems makes it really hard to organize in that way. Not to mention, like even if there is political will, you still need money, right? Like this whole thing of like, I want to go to Timmins and buy <laughs> land with my friends like only works because like I have money. There are some like politically fraught ideas that people still push quite hard. There's a guy called Paul Kershaw who runs this lobby group called Generation Squeeze. He's a university professor. He's been really pushing really hard to end, you know, the principal uh, residence like tax exemption where when you sell your home, you don't have to pay capital gains. And he's like, we should end that. And that's a real, that's a third rail of politics. There's mm. that probably will never happen. But there are people who are saying like, look, we really need to reform how we think about housing because that would create a lot of revenue for government. Yeah. There's like sort of pushier proposals too that are really about raising that revenue. I think the thing for me that just like breaks my brain the most when I think about it, and this is kind of what I want to end on, I guess, is like the financialization of housing in this country is just like has gotten to a point where it's not only the fact that it's like there are these corporations, you know, whether it's like a property management company or a REIT or whatever, that are really good investments that are invested in like making the value of these rental properties like just skyrocket, extracting as much rent as possible out of them. As an individual person, supposedly the best investment you can make is to acquire a home or multiple homes if you can and just like absolutely dig your claws into it. And this is like the voter base that all of the political parties are fighting over, right? And so I think like one phrase that's really stuck with me ever since I first heard it was during the 2021 election, the Trudeau government started like in their campaign to get reelected. They're really heavy on this like notion of the middle class as the most important, right? And like they started instead of saying like working in middle class, the middle class and those working hard to join it, which I think is like an insane yeah. thing to say. It's never going to be true that everyone joins the middle class. It's not middle if that's true, right? Yeah. And we know in Canada, a lot of higher income Canadians also believe that they're middle class too. So it's it's a very ill-defined thing. It's, yeah. yeah. And so there's this notion of like, well, everybody should be able to build wealth this way, invest, buy your own home. But the thing is, is like, if everyone has something, that means the value is not as high. Yeah. Right? Yes. Like, there's no <laughs> yes. world in which it is both true that housing is like the most amazing best investment and everyone's going to make their retirement. And everybody has housing. And yeah. everybody has housing, mm -hmm. right? So I guess like my question then is like, is there even a way out of this without touching some of those political third rails that you mentioned of that mm -hmm. would maybe entail tanking the value of people's houses? Well, I think politically that's always been very hard for governments. And I think that's why, even though they always are told by experts, like stop giving out goodies to homeowners, they can't resist it because that is how you get votes. I think like the thing that I'd like to leave you with is something that this housing researcher called Brian Clifford told me. And Brian was the one who really showed me with like all these graphs that he'd made, like just how huge of a difference that federal government pulling out of housing really made to the social housing supply. He was like, he has these wonderful graphs. It's like, look, this cratered the supply of, of social housing and shows how disastrous it was. And he was like, you know, in the 70s, when we were building lots of non-market housing and co-ops, that was because ordinary Canadians got together and they they organized politically. And he's like, you know, if we want to change things, that's what we have to do again. <laughs> Maybe leave you with that little call to action. I remember at the start of the pandemic, I was living in a different apartment than where I live now. But one of my neighbors slipped a note under my door one night asking if we wanted to rent strike. And I don't think that I've ever felt as politically galvanized by anything as I did yeah. in that moment, even though we didn't go through with it. 
something big has got to shift, I feel like. Yeah, that's one way to start is by individual apartment buildings, the tenants organizing. When there's a threat to people is when people are like facing a, a big eviction attempt and they organize themselves and they come and advocate. I find that extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. And they are kind of acting, you know, they're, they're acting with so much agency at that point. And renters just often feel so powerless. But I think the more that they can organize and really fight for their rights, you know, it used to be like renters were this underclass. Well, now they're in most cities, they're like a good half of, of residents. And that's where a lot of younger people are, too. So, yeah, you know, I think that renters do have the power if they if they can take it. Very inspirational. And I will not let anyone tell me that the key to buying a house is to not buy my coffee. Yeah, buy that cappuccino, Matea. I will not be tied to drinking Tim Hortons coffee. Like, we should be able to afford housing and also, like, live a good life, man. Like, it shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) This is like the beginning of a political campaign. This is good stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're cooking. So after all of this, the one thing that is giving me a sense that maybe there's some hope is the concept of organizing, whether that's me maybe finally organizing with my friends to buy cheap land near Timmins, or whether that's tenants organizing with one another to fight against corporate landlords who won't repair literally anything in their apartment. We need solutions that come out of solidarity and that think outside the box. Here's Tanya again, who you heard off the top of the episode. When you look at a housing as a human right and you realize that the process of financialization is in direct opposition to your right to affordable, habitable, safe housing, I think we just need to turn that paradigm on its end and just sort of look at it like my house is my house, it's the roof over my head, and it's not somebody's pension or investment. What Tanya had to say in our conversation really hammers home that this is a problem that requires massive investment from individuals, from governments, really especially from governments. One thing that I really just don't think about that much because I'm not actually in the market for any land is the fact that land being so expensive is part of what's making it just seemingly impossible for governments to really engage in the building of social housing in any kind of meaningful way. Nothing is really going to solve this problem, it seems. Canada has a lot of cheap land, but we're also not doing that Saudi or Chinese thing of just like building cities in the middle of nowhere. Because that would still require government investment, and this is a fundamental problem. Our government doesn't want to spend money on housing. They don't want to spend money on housing in a way that's going to decrease the value of housing as an investment for the middle class and, quote, those working hard to join it, as the liberals like to say, or for large investment corporations. And... I guess the government is sort of now admitting that they've made a lot of mistakes. Both the Trudeau government over the past eight years and also successive decades of Canadian government since the 90s. I think the only way that we can really reverse this is to invest in not-for-profit housing. We should be able to live well, drink our coffee, and have quality roofs over our heads. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when Justin Trudeau will be back in the House of Commons after crashing on his friend's couch in Jamaica over the holidays. Let us know what you're pissed off about, what you've been watching closely, and what you want to hear us discuss in the world of Canadian politics. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and you can also DM us on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Jen at Jen St. Den, that's J-E-N-S-T-D-E-N, on Twitter. 
even Justin Trudeau's housing situation has been a little fucked lately. Rideau Hall, the official residence of the prime minister, has fallen into complete disrepair. I guess the landlord just doesn't care enough to make the repairs. Reportedly, Rideau Hall's infested with rodents, which makes it a worse place to live than my apartment. Like, at least my landlord cares about that sort of thing. While Prime Minister Stephen Harper was living at Rideau Hall, he had a room known as the Cat Room. It was filled with scratching posts, toys, and kibble for his pet cats. Really, in some ways, it's a shame he's gone, because probably those cats would have come in handy dealing with some of those rats. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azrea with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ijofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.